1: plus
0: hello everyone i'm ben johnson and this is the perpetual chess podcast on perpetual chess i have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players promoters and educators about their lives careers current projects and best practices for more information go to perpetualchesspod.com Hey everyone! So I am here with international master, someone probably who probably needs no introduction to those of you listening. But uh, John Bartholomew, John, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: So I'm a I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel. I'm going to try to uh, try to do an even-handed interview. But first of all, I just want to say I'm, I really respect the way you present yourself to the chess community, and I'm a big fan of your videos.
1: Oh well, I definitely appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I uh, strive to make videos in the way that I would want to. Listen to them or hear them as a viewer. So, thanks for saying that.
0: Sure, no, my pleasure. I mean, you have a—you seem to have a unique perspective of the uh, the weaker chess player's way of thinking. Whether it be someone like me, you know, a few hundred points weaker, or someone, you know, eight hundred, a thousand points weaker, um, it seems like you you really do a good job uh, thinking about the way other people would see things. Is that something that you've worked on?
1: I wouldn't say it's something I've worked on necessarily, but being a chess teacher, I think that comes naturally, having worked with many students who are either just getting their feet wet in the game or have been tournament players for a while but are struggling. I think I can identify pretty strongly with people who are trying to get better in chess and they aren't title players. They aren't the type of players that you're watching on Chess24 or chess.com battle it out at the highest level. They're just your everyday player trying to get better.
0: Yeah, and you've built quite a, fo- quite a following, uh, 38,000 YouTube subscribers. You recently did an event in, in Boston, and is it true that you sold out Fenway Park?
1: <laughs> I wish I could claim that. I did go to Fenway Park, but uh, yeah, we had a nice little meetup. It was a real impromptu thing. I just threw up a video on my uh, channel like two days in advance of my trip there. It was just a family vacation. I went with my parents. We had never checked out Boston before, so we were just seeing the city. And almost on a whim, I thought, hey, I've got a little bit of time and I don't get to interact with viewers in person a lot of times unless I'm at some sort of tournament or something. So I thought, why not just try to organize a meetup and see what happens? You know, I wasn't really didn't have any expectations about how many people would show up, but it turned out to be uh, quite the turnout. There were, I'd say, roughly 50 people who showed up over the course of this afternoon. We held it in uh, Harvard Square which is a famous little park in Boston right next to Harvard. And it's a popular place to play Blitz chess and stuff. And it was a great event. Like 50 people showed up, got some videos out of it. I was able to play everyone who wanted a game, took some selfies with people. Uh, Even uh, another YouTuber showed up. This guy atrophied. Okay. Nicholas Tease is his name. And he came all the way up from Maryland. He drove up from Maryland just specifically to attend this meetup for a few hours.
0: Wow. Yeah, I... I saw, your, uh, I saw you post a couple videos on Twitter. I subscribed to you on YouTube, but um, you probably heard me talk about it. I have kids, so I, my chest educational content consumption is quite limited. I've seen your videos, but I don't get to keep up with all of them. I've only seen, you know, 30 or something. But, so anyway, I don't think you promoted it on Twitter. At least if you did, I missed it. But then all of a sudden, <laughs> you're posting these pictures, and I can't believe how many people are at this event that you organized. It was, it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. And it energized me a lot. I kind of had this idea like, hmm, maybe I should just organize some sort of traveling chess meetup thing, (laughs) you know, not necessarily for my own vanity, but I think there's a lot of potential there. Somehow mixing an online presence with interacting with people on a large scale, like, I don't know, some sort of traveling camp that goes from major city to major city. And it was it was really neat to see how many people were Um, even just casual chess enthusiasts, I would say like probably 90% of the people there were not tournament players necessarily, but had just gotten into the game. I don't know, via playing online or playing with a coworker or something. And that was their first experience interacting with like a, an actual tournament chess player.
0: Nice. Yeah. And something like that has to be good for spreading the gospel of chess. I mean, just there in a public place on a nice day, even people who didn't seek it out, you would think are going to be like, oh, hmm, this, is, uh, this is this is gathering a lot of interest.
1: Yeah, exactly. And when I quoted the 50, roughly 50 people attending number, it is a little hard to say how many people were uh, actually coming out specifically because of me or just stopped by because they saw this huge crowd of people around a chess board and were wondering what the heck was going on.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. And so how was Fenway Park on a On a different subject? I've never been.
1: Fenway was great. I'm not the biggest baseball fan, but my dad is. So we made a point to go out there and it was neat to see a historic ballpark. Okay. Um, and I like Boston a lot. Great city.
0: Yeah. It's a fun
1: city. And how were the Blitz games? The Blitz games were good. So like I said, we were able to record some. One of the subscribers I have was kind enough to record some of the games. So I managed to avoid losing any of the Blitz games, but (laughs) I was on the ropes pretty significantly in one of them against that other YouTuber I mentioned, Atrophied. So and I did lose a Crazy House game. We played an OTB Crazy House game Uh while I was there. So which is quite the trip. If um, any of you are familiar with Crazy House or if you're not, feel free to look it up. But you have to play with two sets in order to make it work.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember it's a derivative of Bug House, w- which makes it a derivative derivative of a derivative, but I don't remember the rules myself, actually.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one person Bug House, essentially.
0: Okay, and they play two boards?
1: Well, you play one board, uh-huh. so whenever you capture one of your opponent's pieces, uh, that piece that you captured becomes your piece. Okay, got it. So if you take, like, uh, if you're white and you take a black bishop, it becomes a white bishop, and you can place that bishop on the board just like you would in Bug House.
0: Okay, and how's your uh, Crazy House strength? Have you put some time in in it? Or,
1: uh, uh, <laughs> I would say I'm not the strongest. I have a general idea of how to play it and what the basic strategies are, but there's a lot of opening theory in Crazy House I've come to learn, and I'm not up to date on that. Right. Some of the openings that you think would be bad in Crazy House are actually pretty playable. Like what? Can you think like of E4, a- E5, for instance. Uh huh. Oh. In Bug House, you don't play that for black so much because... White can get in a quick bishop c four and take on F seven. Right. But in Crazy House, this is apparently completely fine to play. Okay. And the Italian game is mainline theory in that variant.
0: Huh. The the things you learn from uh, from John Bartholomew.
1: <laughs> well, I learned that from Nicholas Teese. So okay. Atrophy, so I gotta give him credit. <laughs> okay.
0: Full credit to Nicholas He Teese. sent me a bunch of
1: opening theory that I didn't actually end up assimilating, but <laughs> a couple things I picked up from him.
0: Okay. So, yeah, I mean, and we mentioned this came from your YouTube following and I, I, you know, in, in preparing for this interview, I was researching your YouTube history and I was surprised to see your first video was only about two and a half years ago.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: That's, uh, that's quite impressive. Two and a half years and 38,000 subscribers. And I don't know how our listeners feel, but to me, uh, you feel like such a constant presence, but I guess that's not really true. Um
1: yeah, I've gone on streaks where I posted quite a bit, especially I'd say in the first year, year and a half. There was a point where I was posting three videos per day. Right. I was posting a bullet video, a blitz video and a standard video every single day.
0: Okay. And when you, when you make your videos, are you doing any editing or is it just like record it, load it, done?
1: Nowadays, I'm dabbling in editing a little bit, but that's mainly for certain types of videos like the live videos. Okay. I'm playing an OTB Blitz game or something. I've started editing in the board mm-hmm. just for visibility purposes and ease of watching. Right. But I'd say ninety-eight percent of the videos on my channel have no editing. It's just yeah, press and record and post it immediately after. Okay.
0: And what was your thought process when you started your YouTube channel?
1: That's a good question, because I've often tried to go back and think why I decided to start. Mainly it was um I think at the time it was just a way for me to actually motivate myself to play more. I found I wasn't really playing a whole lot in between tournaments because you know how it is when you're doing chess a lot, especially with teaching. It's it's difficult to kind of amp up yourself to spend your free time playing online and whatnot. At least I've always had this problem. Yeah. So I figured that the YouTube channel would actually hold me accountable because if I'm playing and posting analysis. I have to be honest about it for one thing. Like I got to post both my wins and my losses. And I might also develop a small following. And if those people like those videos and they don't see me posting for a while, they might call me out on it. Right. So it was a good way to force myself to play a little bit. And from there, it took off pretty quick. I got posted on Reddit. Actually, I think I posted myself on Reddit. I did a a shameless self-promotion post where I was like, hey, I've got this new channel if you guys want to check it out. And
0: I've From been there, there I've been there and done that too, so <laughs> no, <laughs> right you no, right. no need to apologize I feel like
1: you to get me one freebie, yeah, exactly. <laughs> get one freebie with that where you can shamelessly self promote yes exactly, um so yeah, it was a cool way to just hold myself accountable and force myself to play and maybe uh have some people take an interest in it too. Um, yeah. also, I saw Greg Shahadi was uh posting a lot on YouTube as well, and I worked with him at one of his u s chess schools mm-hmm. I was teaching with him there and I was like, hey, if Greg can do this, I can totally do this. Exactly.
0: Too. If a fish like Greg can do it.
1: Right. I can't let him show me up.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, by the way, for beating up on him when you guys have blitz matches. You know, he's one of one of my dearest friends and he beats me in everything. So I love to watch him lose.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. And I think my loss or my wins against him actually keep him up at night. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> occasionally, he goes on Twitter rampages about the Scandinavian defense, which is one of my favorite openings. And uh, it really hurts him, especially when he loses in that opening.
0: Yeah, I know. I know that he's got a little rivalry with uh, with your team, Scandi.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like every every month or two, he'll just go on and start ranting about the Scandinavian. I wonder yeah. why.
0: Although I, I did feel compelled to ask you, I saw you in the London Chess Classic. You had a couple Sicilians um, when you faced uh, e four. Did, did you? Mm-hmm. Did your fans uh, give you some pushback about that?
1: You know, they're pretty good about uh, not holding my feet to the fire when I don't play the Scandinavian every single game. Because <laughs> the thing about the Scandinavian, just to level with you guys about that particular opening, it's um it's like a nostalgic thing for me, right? Like I started learning it when I was younger. Um, I'd say maybe around 1200 or so. And even at the time when I was learning it, I knew it wasn't objectively the best opening. But I had decent results with it. There were some other players in Minnesota where I'm from who are also playing it. And it formed um, a large part of my repertoire when I was younger, like even all the way up to master level, I would say. So it's always held like this nostalgia for me. And even though now I I can't venture it every game against E4 when I'm black, uh, I'll still occasionally try to play it just like for old time's sake. And I definitely play it a lot online. Right.
0: Yeah, and I actually think that If anything, I don't know, you might be able to speak to this better than me, but I feel like there's maybe less dogma about openings now than when we were younger than, say, 15 years ago. Even as computers Mm. make openings more like closer to being quote unquote solved, I feel like someone like Magnus Carlsen and, you know, the Renaissance of like the London and openings like that, I feel like people are more understanding of people just playing things that are solid and not. Like insanely theoretical
1: now, yeah, I think that's a good point. I think people, even at the top levels, grandmasters are searching for systems that are playable and maybe maybe flexible, maybe that's the operative word. openings that are not so heavily studied that do do give you a chance to explore it without rigorous and um comprehensive computer analysis. Um, Unfortunately, with the Scandinavian, I found that in some of the lines, they are so narrow for black, like black's just hanging on by a thread that uh, it's just not a practical weapon against grandmasters. But, yeah, I can totally understand
0: yeah, what you're saying about yeah, the you, evolution of openings. Yeah, you might be just a little too strong to get away with it, yeah, meaning the people you play are too strong. Right. Um, <laughs> um, so getting back to your YouTube channel. So you started posting and when did you start to get an inkling that this was going to be kind of a big deal?
1: I'd say, I'd say maybe three or four months after I started posting and I was getting a good response. I was getting consistent views. I was getting lots of comments on my uh, videos and I was responding to all of them as well. Uh So that set the ball rolling. And just that positive feedback for those of you who ever open a YouTube channel or something similar to that, that really excites you. Like the fact that I was getting that feedback, it just encouraged me to post more and more and That's around the time I started posting those three videos per day I was telling you about, which was a significant time investment. Three videos every single day. Um, You had Christoph Selecki just explained on in one of the earlier broadcasts. And that guy is just a workhorse because he produces three videos per day. It seems like forever. He's been doing that for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. they are blitz videos, but it's still a lot of time.
0: Yeah. Super nice guy, but he definitely, he seemed to like, uh, eat, sleep and breathe chess. Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, which is why he's, he's such a good communicator about it, but definitely hard to maintain that pace. I would think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just like anything, you know, you'll probably burn out. Like I've gone through phases where I haven't completely burned out of posting, but there'll be a week where I'm just thinking to myself, it's you know it almost feels like a job to post a video this week. I'm just not inspired to do it and nowadays i don't I don't make a video I don't force myself to vi- to make a video in those circumstances yeah, and
0: I know you've got quite a loyal following do you get um do you get like angry emails if you don't post at a, on a certain schedule or are people understanding
1: no I gotta say my followers are awesome I think the the group of people who follow me as a whole are some of the coolest people out there, especially on YouTube, which we all know can be a pretty toxic environment. Sometimes, you know, there's that famous saying, right? Like, don't read the comments, right? The YouTube comments. Um, but yeah, if you like, look at the comments on my videos, they're just by and large, extremely positive. I know when I had strep throat recently, I was last week I wasn't posting and, um, a couple people just kind of jokingly said, hey, John, we're going to put out an MIA request for you. Like, Are you are you OK? Did you fall off the face of the earth? What happened? So you get people jokingly trying to um, kind of cajole you into posting again. So that's nice to see their concern if you're away for a while or their support. Like also when I'm playing tournaments, um, I should men- mention this. If I'm playing a GM Norm tournament or something, you wouldn't believe the amount of people that will go to the tournament website or they'll go to Chess24 or Chessbomb.com and comment in the tournament um, arena or the page that has all of the games for that event. And they'll be like, Go, John, Team Scandi, rooting me on this, you know, 2450 rated IM. Right. I often wonder if some of the other participants in these tournaments are like wondering who the heck this guy is. Like, why does he have such a large following?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think most people know who you are, but I get that. I've seen it. Like in the Pro Chess League, for example, you guys were definitely a fan favorite
1: yeah yeah it's really neat to see that, and that's um all the power of the internet and YouTube right there,
0: yeah well, I mean it speaks to to the quality of uh the product you put out too I mean, I think people feel like you know uh presenting these videos if if people are watching you every day it's like you're a part of their life, so they they like to give back and I actually like I followed you at the London chess classic like stuff like that is, is more feasible for someone who's not at their computer much like me to do. Like, I like mm. to track the large large tournaments on my phone. Um, and, you know, when you were doing those little quick hitters, updating how you were doing, that's like more feasible for me to watch than like a longer video. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed rooting you on, too.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, and that's a cool format, right? I feel like that might become more popular with chess players in general. I noticed more people are putting out V-logs, for instance, uh, the chess bras. Eric Hansen, Amon i yeah. have been making some vlogs when they play in tournaments. And I think that is a nice little format. And I think, especially if you if you have experience with editing, you can uh, bring people up to speed pretty fast on what your tournament exploits are.
0: Yeah, and it can go in, in different directions. Like uh, Kostya Kavutsky, another former guest, and Isaac Steinkamp, they were at the Reykjavik Open, and they did these sort of super detailed postmortems, mortems um, mm-hmm. which, which is another way you can go. Um, so, but yeah, and, and I like it. I mean, I, I think a lot of chess players like, you know, we want, we like following chess, but sometimes we wish we were playing. And if you're not playing, like getting updates from someone who's there is sort of the, the next best thing.
1: Yeah, and to that end, as long as we're on that topic, uh, if there's a GM out there who's on the tournament trail and maybe leads an especially interesting life, I think you have great potential to market yourself via YouTube you know, it's hard to make a living in chess, but YouTube is a a great gateway to increasing your presence. So I think, you know, if someone, let's say in the top 50 in the world, were to open a channel and start posting regularly, post updates from the road, tell people what it's like to be a chess professional. I think people would love to hear that. I would love to hear that, even though I kind of have an insider view of what's that like, what what that's like.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was one of the ideas of this podcast. Obviously, I'm you know, it's hard for me to crack the top 50. I did manage to get Peter Fiddler, but...
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the closest you come to the top 50.
0: Well, that counts for sure, but I'm just saying that was just one person out of many guests, but I do think that would be awesome. And yeah, I think maybe we'll be interested to see if someone uh, runs with that idea.
1: Um, yeah, that sort of thing excites me, like with Twitch even. What happens if a top 10 player in the world decides to make like one Twitch video per month? Maybe they just log on and play a tournament on chess.com. Maybe they play like title Tuesday or something and they stream it at the same time. That would just be insane. Like people would love to watch that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because like, I feel like from an educational perspective, it wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't be any different than say watching one of your videos for, I mean, it could be worse actually, depending on how they are as a presenter, but, Mm -hmm. but just the novelty of someone that amazing at chess, I feel like would get people tuning in.
1: Right, right. Because we have that great luxury in the chess world that the game happens to interact awesomely with all of this new technology that we have at our disposal, which is pretty crazy to think about, right? Like this ancient game that interfaces so well with the internet and social media. And I think people should take advantage of that, especially at the professional level if we want to try and grow chess.
0: Yeah. I mean, we don't know uh, where chess is in the the development curve, you know? I mean, it's obviously, it's been around for you know, 1600 years or whatever it is, but everything goes in cycles and chess is clearly on an upswing, but we don't know what inning it's in, in this upswing. So hopefully it's early innings. Yeah. I yeah, mean.
1: definitely. I remember during the world championship, this past world championship between Karyakin and Carlson, I was just kind of curious about the social media presence of Karyakin in particular, since he was the challenger and less known and I remember looking on Twitter, and I was shocked by how few Twitter followers he had. I think he had like something like twelve thousand Twitter followers, and I was thinking, you know, this guy's like a whisker away from winning the world championship and becoming, you know, the world the the chess player to beat for the next however many years. Um, maybe Magnus Carlson would have an argument against that, even if Karjakin did become world champion. But you get what I mean. And uh, it was a little depressing in a way to see how little marketing he had done for himself like this is not a call out of karyakin but maybe just a symptom of a greater issue in the chess world uh i think as chess players maybe we don't have the best sense of how to promote the game
0: yeah yeah it's certainly at best it's on a case-by-case basis i mean fide is certainly not doing us any favors so that uh Mm -hmm. there's definitely no unified vision being presented with the exception of the the online sites are doing a good job obviously Mm mm-hmm Um, but, but yeah, from the, the top level tournament, uh, they could do more. Right. Um, so you built this following with YouTube and I know, uh, you're a teacher. So were you basically, I mean, you know, we'll get into your background a little bit, uh, but let's just start with where you were two years ago. Like how did it affect your work life? I mean, I already sort of, I've had enough YouTube people on to know that the, The YouTube revenue itself isn't like a huge deal for someone's uh, livelihood, but how has uh, having 38,000 subscribers generally affected your life as a chess professional?
1: I'd say it's mostly affected it positively in that I get a lot more inquiries for lessons now, Mm -hmm. probably something like tenfold the amount of inquiries that I used to get prior to posting videos. And I was pretty busy with teaching even before I started doing YouTube. So you can imagine what it's like now. I have a pretty extensive waiting list going on and as a result i've been able to raise my rate and work less hours make it easier easier on myself day to day so yeah increasing my my coaching presence has been uh the most visible positive byproduct as it relates to like my chess career let's say
0: cool good for you and with your ability to scale back your work what do you do with your your newfound free time
1: yeah so um that's funny you ask that, because I sometimes wonder if I'm using my time in the best way. I'm always trying to optimize it. So Chessable, the site that I started up about a year ago, has occupied some of my time. Um, also, just pursuing some of my own personal interests, staying fit. I try to go to the gym a lot these days, and that's helped immensely in every aspect of my life. Just my energy levels, my day-to-day well-being. Uh, also, honestly, like in my schedule, I just try to schedule time to do almost absolutely nothing. I think that's very important just to have blocks of time that you set aside for yourself specifically. You know, if you're you're busy and you're juggling a number of projects, you um, you have to remember that you're not a robot and that it is important to just do nothing every once in a while. So I, I try to set aside many blocks of time in my schedule to do that. Maybe I'll go to the coffee shop or just take a walk outside, go see a friend or something, go visit my parents who live across town about 10 minutes away. Okay. So nice. that sort of thing. Okay.
0: And you, when you say do nothing, you, I mean, it could be surfing the internet. It's, you know... Could be lying on the couch. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sounds good to me. D- don't have children if you want to keep that up.
1: <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That may change in the future.
0: <laughs> so, John, you mentioned Chessable. Uh, I've checked it out a little bit. It's a um, pretty, pretty impressive site, pretty nice way for people to get exposure to uh, opening ideas. How... And... And you recently had a nice write-up somewhere. I think it was in a Minnesota newspaper. I'm sure you know better than I. But yeah, Star you, Tribune. Okay. okay. And why don't you um, give the okay. listeners a little bit more info about what the product's about for those who aren't familiar?
1: Yeah, so Chessable is uh, a site that I co-founded with David Cramley. And I have to give David the lion's share of the credit because he was the visionary of the site. So David was um, he's about a 1900-rated player. He lives in England. And he approached me at the end of 2015. He emailed me and he said he watches my videos and that he had this great idea for a chess site to help people better learn the game. And he was really excited to share it with me. And what was very impressive is that he had a working model of the site all ready to go. So, it wasn't just an idea that he had in his head. He had actually built this thing from scratch by himself. Wow. He has a background in game design. So, I was intrigued by what he was saying. So we got on a Skype call and he showed it to me. And essentially what the site is, is it's um, a way to better learn the game using spaced repetition and scheduling. So if you think of sites like Duolingo or Memrise for language learning, people out there listening to this might have used that, those sites before. So they use the same thing. Basically, you're presented with these words or in our case, chess lines and You memorize them and you assimilate the associated ideas that the author is presenting in the lines. And our module will prompt you to learn those again sometime in the future. So you'll prove that you know it then. You'll replay the line and then it'll save. And then in the future, the module will prompt you to learn them again. So it uses reinforcement to make sure that you can um, use these in your actual games. Okay, So do you, so, do you
0: prompt it to prompt you or is it just like you log on and it's quizzing you?
1: Yes, it's quizzing you and it'll tell you if you have moves to review okay. and then you'll click on the button and you'll remove, you'll review your, your moves for the day or for the week.
0: Okay. So it's like a given time frame. Like, do you program it to test you a certain amount of time or how, how is it determined when, when it's going to do a future review with you?
1: Yeah. So it's a, it's a daily thing. Okay. Um, you have like a daily streak, actually, if you use the site on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of our hardcore user, users use it every single day, although you don't have to. You could just use it before a tournament if you wanted to, to kind of spruce up your repertoire and learn your lines.
0: Okay. And
1: this approach works best for learning openings, as you might imagine. So I pub- published a number of repertoires on there, and users seem to uh, use it best with openings. But we've also started to branch out with things like end games for instance there's concrete end games that you want to learn and memorize and chessable helps you do that as well or even things like tactics it's great right. with building patterns with that Nice um, so what does
0: your work entail for the site like what sort I know that you've you've done a good job promoting it I saw the YouTube video you did from London when you were out there um, what what else do you do for the site you you make repertoires and uh, get the word out any other, What other daily responsibilities do you have?
1: Yeah, so I coordinate on a lot of the major business decisions as the co-founder. But um, as far as day-to-day responsibilities, mostly just being on the site, answering questions. That's one thing that's really cool about our site is that it gives you basically real-time interaction with the authors of the repertoires. So you can go on and um, study or buy individual repertoires and often the author of the repertoire will respond to your comments. Like you can leave a comment on a specific line, like, hey, on this on move number fourteen here, you're suggesting Bishop E two. Why is that better than Knight F four? And a lot of times the author will respond to you. Wow. So I get on there and do that sort of thing, especially for the repertoires I've created. And also I, I review the repertoires that people submit. So I check them for accuracy and make sure they're good to publish because uh, one of our major goals with Chessable is to become a uh, centralized place for people to share repertoires, whether they're opening repertoires, endgame repertoires, whatnot, and allow a easy exchange of information, and also have repertoire authors get paid. I yeah, think that's one exciting thing that they get the lion's share of the revenue on the repertoires.
0: Yeah, it's so, a it's a great idea. Um, one of those things that you know helps you guys and can help other uh, chess professionals and you know semi professionals. Right. Um, so what's, uh, do you guys have like a five-year plan or like in terms of, uh, you said you were, um, working on business development, what, what else do you guys have planned?
1: Yeah. So fortunately we just received some significant investment. So we just raised about $130,000 us from a few private investors. Wow. Nice. And yeah, yeah, it's been great. And our, um, our immediate goals are to implement some feature improvements on the site. And to do that, we've actually hired a couple people part-time to help us out, which is pretty cool. And also, we, we're talking to some major chess publishers as well. We're trying to allow them to license their content on our site. Oh, that's a good idea. the chessable method. Right. And we're getting close. We're getting close with a couple publishers. So wow, I'm very optimistic that in the near future, you'll see some uh, titles from recognizable chess books on our site.
0: Pretty cool. That sounds like um, a, a really nice symbiosis. So were these venture capitalists that invested in your site, were they from the uh, the chess domain or were they just regular venture capitalists?
1: Yeah, they are. They all have a, a working knowledge of chess. And uh, in the case of one of our investors, quite a good knowledge of chess. So he's a master himself.
0: Okay. So was it like sort of through chess channels that you found these investors?
1: Yep, that's exactly right. And okay. when I was in London back in December, I was there playing the London Chess Classic. I actually met up with a couple of these investors. Okay. So I was able to to meet them face to face and I was very happy when things worked out later that they came on board with investment and joined our team.
0: Yeah, it sounds pretty cool. It's kind of like a proper startup now with you guys hiring people and with your your growth plan in place and and um, I'll be I'll be watching to see what what you guys develop.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting. Um I got on board originally because as a chess teacher, it's something that appealed to me being able to direct my students to repertoires that I've created and say, hey, I put in the work to um, give you guys access to this resource. So, for instance, I published a D4 repertoire for white and I made it freely available on the site. It has several hundred students, so several hundred people that are studying the repertoire right now. And I just created an entire repertoire for D4. It goes about 10 moves deep. And I tried to explain the main ideas of what you're going for and offered recommendations that people can put into practice in their own games. And I'm not aware of really any other resource online that does that sort of thing, especially one where the author is interfacing with you as the person studying. So I have people post questions and I'm always happy to answer. It's, it's really interesting to do that.
0: Yeah, and I know that when Christoph Zalicki came on the podcast, he actually mentioned, you know, he had written a chess book, and he mentioned that he felt like this was sort of like a a better way for um, a player of his caliber who, you know, has a following to share opening research than writing a book, which he, of course, has done. So um, that in itself uh, suggests that you guys are onto something here.
1: Yeah, that was very positive feedback to hear that from Christoph, because... He is such a logical guy with a large following who really knows what he's talking about and is just a great chess author too. Like His his book on uh, the Nimzo and Bogo Indian is awesome and the repertoire that he made for Chessable on the Benko Gambit is awesome too. And to have him say that he really approves of the Chessable model, especially the way it compensates authors, really likes the fact that the authors do get the majority of the revenue. And um, I think that's just a kind of a uh, disruption of the traditional chess publishing model, where a publisher is paying you a, a flat fee for your work, and it takes forever to get your stuff published. There's such a rigorous process. Now the process is a lot easier because it's a, it's really a living, breathing thing. Like You can modify the lines even after you publish them. You could update them for the current state of theory, too, which is a major shortcoming of uh, traditional print chess opening books. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it definitely makes more sense in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, we'll be watching. Um, but I want to pivot a little bit, John, and get into your, your background. I mean, I'm, I'm a little older than you, but we have friends in common. Shout out to UTD
1: people. Yeah. Dimitri and Andre.
0: Yeah. Dimitri and Andre and Igor, um, met once at a bar in Brooklyn many years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. but I want to get back to even before then. So you, how old were you when you started playing chess?
1: So I was in second grade when I learned chess. So let's say eight years old. Oh, late late bloomer, huh? <laughs> yeah, especially this day and age. If you yeah. if you tell that to someone today, they're like, "Yeah, you're not going to become world champion, I'll even <laughs> try."
0: Right. It's uh, it's sad, but probably true.
1: Yes, and I really didn't start playing tournaments until about sixth grade. Okay, me so too. that's that's really late. So um, I was a pretty good chess player, though. I got to say, before I started playing lots of USCF rated tournaments. I was studying the game quite a bit. I vividly remember when I was in second, third grade, I would go to my school library and check out books on chess. And I think over the course of the, the school year, I read every single book they had there on chess, which probably wasn't a lot. But back then, it seemed like a lot. Yeah, And, and the I was books, bringing these books home and working through them on my own.
0: Yeah, I feel like the books were a lot worse then, too. I you
1: don't think know.
0: so? Or at least... I don't know it was a lot harder to figure out which ones to get. I mean there were no uh, I'm a, I'm, like we've said I'm a little bit older than you, but like when I was a kid, when I was 12 and starting out, there were no Amazon reviews. I mean there was hmm. chess bookstores at tournaments and that's sort of where you
1: got your books but it was just a sea of books and who knew which ones to get hmm. um, so you're almost picking one up at random or relying on word of mouth maybe what some other person told you to get.
0: Yeah, which is, you know, I guess that's sort of what you're doing with Amazon reviews, too. But they're more crowdsourced. I mean, it's, you know, you, you, right. have, a, you have a lot more voters. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. So what, uh, what, what was your initial introduction to chess? Like, who taught you?
1: Yeah, so it was a friend of mine. In, uh I went to, like, this before-school program. Like, my parents would go to work, and they dropped me off at this before-school program, like, an hour or two before classes started. And a friend of mine in that program taught me. Uh, his name is Aaron. Got to give him a shout out, right? Got to right, give a shout out to the person who teaches you chess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: definitely. And he was my
1: first opponent. So um, that was the initial challenge that was presented to me in chess was like, okay, how do I beat Aaron? Right. I just want to beat this one, <laughs> one dude who taught me the game. <laughs> and uh, eventually, after maybe a month or so of trying, I was able to beat him. And that's when I started checking out those books. Um, I also got a tabletop chess computer. A couple years later, my parents purchased me one. And I credit that thing with giving me the most progress in chess. That was my my first real opponent, if you will, aside from Aaron, because no one in my chess in my family played chess. So I was really um, just trying to seek out opponents all the time. And this is before the Internet was a big thing. So I didn't really know where to turn. So my parents had the foresight to get me this tabletop chess computer and it had 72 levels on it. And I think it topped out at about maybe sixteen or 1,700 USCF strength, something like that. And I started at level zero, and I wouldn't go on until I beat the level. And over the course of something like a year and a half, I eventually beat level 72. So just trial and error, banging my head against the wall, figuring out how to beat each level. I eventually beat level 72, and that gave me a ton of confidence.
0: Nice. That's about the
1: time I started playing tournaments after that.
0: And you made a YouTube video about that, right?
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. which ironically is one of my highest viewed videos, even (laughs) though I kind of didn't intend it to be that way.
0: Right. Yeah, you just never know. But I mean, anyway, you give your parents credit and I'm sure they they deserve credit at large. But I mean, it speaks to your your work ethic and I guess your sort of uh, your passion for chess. I mean, a lot of kids might get something like that and use it once and then go back to playing video games. But it sounds like to you it sort of became an obsession right away.
1: Yeah, definitely, which I've seen since then in a lot of my students and a lot of people who I talk to that have got into the game. Um, I think chess definitely tends to attract introverted people who are comfortable working on their own. And I remember even when I was five years old, I, I got this Lego pirate ship for Christmas. And this was like the only gift I wanted. I was just looking forward to it for months. My parents got it for me. And Christmas Day, I opened it up and then immediately took it to my room. I was like, See you guys later to my mom and dad and my brother. I'm going to put this thing together. Nice. And it took me like, I don't know, a day or two. I didn't come out of my room hardly at all except to eat. And uh, I finally built that thing. And that's sort of the approach I use for chess, too. Like, I I definitely don't mind doing work on my own, even back then. And um, trying to figure out how something works or how you get good at a certain skill.
0: And and you mentioned that chess is a game that appeals to uh, introverts and problem solvers. I I agree. You're obviously a problem solver. Do you do you also consider yourself an introvert?
1: You know, I've thought about that a lot. Um, I might be more of an ambivert, but probably trending towards an introvert. Yeah, I know it might seem like for my videos and whatnot that I'm extroverted, uh, charismatic, whatnot. But uh, I wouldn't say that's my my natural mode of operation. I don't mind being that way, but uh, if I have a choice between being around people and getting my energy from a group of people or getting my energy from myself and pursuing my own projects, I usually like to pursue my own projects.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I can relate. Um, Okay. So moving forward with the chess, how soon was it before you started showing up on like US top 50 lists and stuff like that?
1: So between grades six and eight, so let's say between ages 12 and 14, I made quite a bit of progress. I think I went from about 1,200 rated to over 2,000 in wow. that time period, uh, which nowadays is probably pretty standard for most of these prodigies. Yeah. but um, Yeah. Back then, like let's say 1996 to 2000, uh, that was a pretty significant jump. So I'd say, yeah, right around seventh, eighth grade is when I started appearing on those lists. And I also had some success at the national level. There was actually one calendar year where I won the national junior high championship. So K through nine, the national grade level championship, which was grade nine, and then the national high school championship. I won that as a a freshman, a ninth grader in high school. Wow. That all happened like within one calendar year. That's amazing.
0: And were you working with anyone at that point? Um, Did you have like a school team or was it just pretty much on your own?
1: So the majority of the work was was on my own, but I, I want to give credit to two people in particular. Uh, the first one is FIDE Master Ed Zelkind, who's um, a guy from here in Minnesota. He actually lives just a few miles away from me, and he was my first chess coach. Um, I didn't work with him for a particularly long period of time, but he's always been kind of a mentor to me, and he definitely steered me in the right direction. Uh, Ed actually used to coach Boris Gelfond when Gelfond was a kid. And it's cool because Gelfon actually showed up to one of the camps that Ed ran in the summertime here in Minnesota. And he he showed up to one of these camps when we were a kid. Wow. Uh, and at the time, I don't think I, I fully understood who he was or how important he was in the chess world or let alone the fact that he was going to challenge for the world championship. Right. But that was pretty neat in retrospect. So Ed was was definitely influential and he instilled a lot of positive habits, uh, you know, Russian school habits into my, my play. And also Fide master, Robbie Adamson, who I'm good friends with to this day.
0: Yeah. Uh, good guy.
1: Arizona. Yeah. He's awesome. Robbie's great. He helped me, especially when I was, let's say 1800 to 2100. He helped me out a lot in the openings department. And, um, I went out to Tucson once and spent some time with him. I think we were out there for about three or four days. I was out there with my dad And Robbie and I just trained chess, like, the entire time. And that was the first time that I've ever seriously worked on the game. Like, we went hard, too. Like, we went, we were working, like, 8, 10 hours a day on chess. And up until that point, I had never done anything close to that. I would study chess in in blocks of time, but never, like, dedicating an entire day to it.
0: So, I'm sorry, what what age and rating would this have been?
1: So, I was probably 1,800 or so when I started working with Robbie. So, let's say 1,800 to 2,100. Okay. And, and it was pretty pretty informal. It was kind of like one-off sessions that we would do. But uh, he uh, he definitely showed me a thing or two in the openings and showed me how to study chess, really, and how to approach it from uh, a professional perspective.
0: Nice. And then, um, so fast forward a couple years and you ended up going to UTD?
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah. But-
0: yeah, we've had a few UMBC alums uh, on the, the podcast. We had um, Timor Gureyev, who ended up at uh, UT. I think it was Rio Grande. Um, but I believe that you're the first UTD alum um, to to grace me with his presence. So, mm-hmm. so could you tell us a little bit about the program there? I'm, they have quite a reputation.
1: Yeah, so UTD is the University of Texas at Dallas. And I got a scholarship there by virtue of winning, I believe it was the... K-9 national championship. So I was a chess slash academic scholarship. And I toured the school when I was in 10th grade, and I really liked it. And the fact that they supported chess players, had a chess team, and would actually give you a stipend to go play tournaments throughout the school year was pretty cool. So you know that plus the prospect of completely free college tuition was pretty much too hard to pass up. So yeah, I matriculated to UTD and I was a business administration major while I was there. And I was lucky to enter UTD at a time when we had a, a very strong team. I think when I was a freshman, we had something like 10 IMs and maybe like five or six GMs on our team. We were absolutely stacked. It was pretty crazy. So we won um, the the final four a couple times while I was there. Um, so what I also I vividly remember losing to Timur Gureyev actually in a particularly pivotal game to uh, lose the national championship for us as well. <laughs> right. It wasn't all my fault, but that was definitely a contributing factor.
0: Yeah. Well, no shame in losing to him.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Although I'm so sure. I really enjoyed my time down there. I met a lot of friends that I still have to this day and was able to travel as a result of being on the chess team and having that stipend. Um, and also just getting out of the state for a while, too, I think, in having a different experience in life. Like I had never lived anywhere, but Minnesota up until that point. So that gave me a nice perspective on things. Nice.
0: Yeah. And I I read a couple old interviews with you in getting ready for this. And I I mean, and as I recall, you went to to law school briefly. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So after I graduated from UTD, I had it in my head that I wanted to be a lawyer because I actually think, you know, since lawyers do tons of writing and critical thinking, that fits my skill set pretty well. Like in school, I was always a good writer and I enjoyed English class and such and enjoyed presenting arguments and defending them. So, um, yeah, I was in law school at the University of Denver out in Colorado for a semester. So did you go straight?
0: Was, sorry to cut you off, but did you go straight to law school from uh, graduating or did you do anything in between?
1: No, I took a year off where I was mostly just playing and studying chess. Okay. Okay. And And I was studying for the LSAT at the same time.
0: Okay. And we'll get to law school. We'll get back to that in a minute. But I'm just curious if like being a chess teacher or slash chess professional, I feel like it it didn't seem as feasible, even though it wasn't that long ago. So was it on your radar at that time?
1: That's a good question. So I graduated in 2009. And it wasn't really on my radar. I think I was still in the mode of, well, that's just not a legitimate career path. I had taught students throughout high school and college, so I had some teaching experience. But for some reason, it had never really occurred to me that I could actually do that on a professional level. I think I kind of had it in the back of my head, like, okay, this might work if everything else fails. Right. (laughs) And I have no other options. Um, But yeah, I was still thinking, like, go their traditional route, either get a job or go to grad school.
0: Okay. So you went to Denver for a semester.
1: Right. Yep. So I went out there. And I figured out pretty quick that a career in law just wasn't for me, uh, which was interesting because I actually did really well in the semester that I went. And I wrote on to one of the law reviews there, which is which can be tough to do when you're a first year law student. Uh, So I actually got something published as a result of that. It's like an artifact from my my law school career. I got a paper published in like my first uh, semester or like a case published, I I should say. And um, yeah, I wasn't there for very long, but. That was a, a pretty, pretty pivotal moment in my life because uh, once I made the decision to quit law school, that's when I started doing chess full time.
0: Okay. And what, what was it about law school that, that made it less appealing than, say, chess?
1: I guess my future in law just seemed too narrow to me in talking to my professors and lawyers that I met in that first semester and seeing the type of work that you do. As a lawyer, which is um, some people probably listening to this may know, but if you're a lawyer in the U.S., you don't do the flashy stuff that you see on like Law & Order SVU. Uh, Most lawyers are hardly ever in the courtroom. Right. Most of it is pretty boring transactional work where you're stuck at a desk and um, you're not doing the exciting things that you see uh, in all these courtroom dramas. Which is okay. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people who are passionate about law, but um and I actually even knew some of that coming in, but I think just having that staring you in the face and liking aspects of studying law, but just not relishing the prospect of practicing it, that kind of soured me on law pretty fast.
0: Yeah. I had a a similar experience back. I when I graduated college I worked at a law firm for a couple of years, uh, like a corporate law firm. And I saw that most of the lawyers weren't that happy. Not not saying, you know, for any lawyers listening, I know there are happy lawyers. But my personal experience was the ones that I saw weren't that happy. But I still actually was planning on going to law school myself. And I took a year away from working at the office to teach chess, and then just realized i liked like teaching chess better than the life that the lawyers I saw led. So I also narrowly avoided it, but took one less step than you. <laughs> I, uh, mm. I didn't quite go. I realized uh, before I even went to law school that uh, it wasn't the path for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just the practicality of being a lawyer too. I know when I graduated, I think a lot of people had the same idea, graduated from undergrad, that is, it was the economy was in the sewer. And a lot of people either couldn't find jobs or were just vastly underemployed. So I think many had the idea like, Hey, let's go back to grad school and get some more education and ride out this recession. Right. So as a result, there was a glut of lawyers produced several years later. And it's a a very difficult industry to crack unless you went to an extremely prestigious school and did very, very, very well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So when you dropped out of Denver, where did you live after that?
1: So I went back to Minnesota briefly. I actually had to go back home and have knee surgery I tore my ACL and ended up having surgery back there and kind of recovered, was living with my parents. And uh, I think in, I want to say about April 2011, so I quit law school at the end of 2010 and by like spring 2011, I moved out to New York City and that's where you and I ended up meeting.
0: Yeah, our one and only encounter. (laughs) Right, yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I lived in New York from 2011 to 2012.
0: Okay. And you taught for chess in the schools?
1: Yeah. So I taught for chess in the schools a little bit. I was also doing private teaching too. Okay. I was dipping my toes into that aspect of um, making it as a chess professional, really not knowing what I was doing. So um, I moved to New York um, almost as a spur of the moment thing. I um, had some friends there. So like we were talking about Dimitri and Andre, who are chess players as well. So international master and FIDE master, Andre Zaremba and Dimitri Schneider. So they were my roommates when I moved out to New York. And um, they provided a lot of motivation. They knew I wasn't happy in law school. And they uh, fortunately had a place opening up in their apartment. And they were like, hey, you can move in here if you want. And at the time when I quit law school, I knew I wanted to give chess a shot. Because like I had said earlier, I had it in the back of my head for a while. And I figured, okay, this is a a great chance to just roll the dice in life and see what happens. And, you know, worst case scenario, I go crying back to Minnesota and beg my parents to let me move back in with them. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, fortunately that didn't happen. I got out to New York. I did start working for chess in the schools, which is a nonprofit in New York city, but also worked on building up my, my private teaching as well. Started teaching a bit online and in person.
0: Yeah, and I and I think the reason we only crossed paths once in New York is because you didn't last that long.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was only there for a year.
0: Yeah, I mean a year is not not a tiny amount of time, but uh but we lived on the opposite sides of New York, so I uh really enjoyed your roommate's company but didn't get to see them as much as I would like. Um, yeah. so what made you decide to leave New York?
1: So uh at the time I was thinking about staying or leaving, I was starting to get a lot of students online. And that was becoming the majority of my chess work. I was doing a lot less in person around New York City, a lot less teaching in schools, but my online business seemed to be taking off. I was getting students from all over the place, around the U.S. and abroad via Skype. So I thought, why pay New York rent and live in a place with a huge cost of living when I can go back to uh, Minnesota? And because I always had it in my head that I wanted to go back and live in my home state. I really like it here and. Most of my friends and family are here. So it just made sense from a cost of living perspective to to do that and still grow my online business.
0: Yeah. It sounds sounds very rational, although a lot of people will, you know, a lot of Dyed in the Wolves New excuse me, Died in the wool New Yorkers will will live there even though it doesn't make sense. You know?
1: Yeah. But, yeah, well that's what everyone says about New York, right? they always especially people who didn't grow up on the East coast are like, well, New York's a great place to live for a while, but I wouldn't want to be there permanently.
0: Yeah. Well, I I certainly, it took me a while to arrive at that place. It took, took some kids for me to come to that conclusion, but, uh, Ah, right. But, but yeah, it's, uh, I think, um, very practical decision on your part. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what was driving the online business, you know, before you were a YouTube superstar,
1: I would say it was mostly word of mouth and, you know, chess teaching is so funny because there's no playbook or no resource about how to do it properly. You have all these different like kind of snippets that you might get from books or articles. And maybe it's a little easier to figure out how to be a chess coach nowadays. But yeah, like back then, like, you know, 2011, 2012, I was just making it up. Basically, I kind of knew what worked with students I had taken on in the past when I was in high school and college. But um, I was really just figuring things out on the fly. But I think my, um, my prowess as a chess teacher was reflected in the positive feedback I was getting from students mm-hmm. and also the, the very flattering um, feedback I would get when they would refer me to other students. They'd say, yeah, John has done a great job with me. Or if it was a parent, like John has done a great job with uh, my son or daughter, you should you know, hit him up for lessons, basically. So most of my, um, students that I had from the beginning were just purely through word of mouth.
0: Okay. And was it, I'm sure it was a mix, but was it more adults or more kids or, or more
1: kids? Definitely.
0: Okay. And what is, what is your opinion of like the, you know, the, the best ways to improve? I mean, obviously that's a very broad unanswerable question, but that's what people want to hear. So.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably the number one question I get on (laughs) my YouTube channel in particular. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously it's going to be different for whatever level you're at. But I would say the main thing is just playing longer games and analyzing those games. I think so many people get caught up in playing faster games, especially online. We kind of have this culture of, you know, how many games can I get in in the shortest amount of time possible? And that just doesn't really work with chess. Like you're not going to get better trying to brute force it with quick games. Like you've got to play games where you actually have time for reflection. So I would say that. Um, and analyzing them too, like that, that goes hand in hand with it. If you're just playing games and never analyzing them, I mean, it sounds obvious, but you're just not going to get better or you're not going to get better nearly as quickly as you would if you were to look at those games with a critical eye and not use the computer immediately. Like the computer should be used as a, uh, a last, last check of your analysis. Just don't disengage your brain, um, because you want that quick analysis from chess.com or Lee chess or whatnot, you actually have to draw some conclusions on your own before you turn that thing on. That's I would good. say if you play longer games and you analyze them, regardless of the, your level, you will, you will get better.
0: Okay. I, I mean, I think that's great advice. I, I struggle with that myself, especially cause I, I mean, I'm at a different place probably than a lot of our listeners, but for me, it's like the tournament itself is a big time commitment. So then to actually, to actually take the same or you know an hour per game or something and review it is a stretch so it's and it's like i always want to look at it while i still have time like you know while it's somewhat fresh in my head so i have a Mm -hmm. hard time avoiding the computer you know yeah it's a
1: temptation i'm even guilty of it myself too uh (laughs) i've had a number of like do as I say, not as I do moments as a chess teacher and YouTube personality and whatnot, where like, I'll take a quick peek at the engine when I probably shouldn't.
0: Yeah, it's just so hard not to, especially if it's like one position, you know, <laughs> like right. that that one critical moment where you're like, God, there had to be something there. And you just, you know, <laughs> the game ends and you just want to look, you
1: know? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a microcosm of how information is disseminated online, right? Like everyone has Google and Wikipedia at their fingertips and... Um, I don't know. I think to uh, obtain a greater understanding of whatever you're looking to um, master or understand, you got to use that resource, but it can't be like your only resource at the ex- expense of your brain and research into a number of sources.
0: Right. Okay. So with your students, you do a lot of game review. Um, wh- what else? Like, let's say it's a talented kid who's, uh, you know, looking to go from expert to master. What What's a typical lesson like?
1: Mm, so in that instance, probably there has to be a lot of work done on their opening rep- repertoire and the associated middle games. I think when you have talented players, ambitious players who are trying to make a push towards master, those are the things that you got to tighten up a lot. Yeah.
0: So,
1: yeah, we would probably work quite extensively on their opening repertoire and making sure they understand the associated middle games as well. Yeah. And kind of along with what I was talking about earlier. Just instilling them in them a, uh, a sense of how to properly study chess, like Robbie Adamson did with me, like up until that point, up until a good player sat me down and said, "Here are the things that you do, like this is how you use chess base, this is how you effectively use chess books. Um, these are the habits that you should avoid, like so up like, until that point, I hadn't really thought about it so
0: what did I mean chess base is probably tough to explain uh, on an audio only podcast, but what did he tell you about books?
1: Um, I think it was mainly like what Sort of books would help you, mm-hmm. and the takeaways from them. So, uh, for instance, I know a, a dilemma that a lot of people run into at all levels is you pick up this chess opening book. It's like 500 pages long. It has all these variation, variations and sub variations. You might play through the first game or the first variation, and then you just get so inundated with all this info. You're like, how am I going to work through this entire behemoth of a book? And you just put it down and you lose motivation and you never touch it again, so he kind of showed me how to parse through that information properly, what variations that you don't have to uh, play out on a board or play out on your your screen, and uh, which ones are like important to look at essentially because for a lot of these books, I feel like you can you could just cut out um, like seventy five percent of the analysis where they go off on a side tangent and they say, well, in this game like this variation was played and uh, mastering the skill of knowing when to uh, just stop looking at that stuff and when it's not worth your time to pursue that line and instead focus on lines that you might actually get in a game, like that's super important. That can yeah. save you tons and tons of hours.
0: Yeah, just to be practical.
1: Yeah, and I think Greg Shahadi even mentioned this in one of his blog posts that he thinks chess books should be about you know, a fourth or the fifth of the size that they currently are. Yeah. And I completely agree. Yeah. I think it's too much information. Like even professionals – yeah, uh, have no interest in studying that much.
0: Right. Um, okay. And what are what are your favorite chess books?
1: That's a good question. So, um, I, I guess I have a few different books for different categories. I really like Mikhail Tal's book, My Life in Games. Oh wow! I think as far as a chess autobiography or biography, that's one of the best. It's very entertaining, and I just really liked his writing style. Um. A book I recommend to a lot of people who are trying to improve is this book, Tune Your Chess Tactics Antenna. Okay. Not,
0: not familiar with that one.
1: Yeah, it's not super well known. But um, what I like about that book in particular is it, it tells you how to train your sense of danger mm-hmm. and what signals you should be looking for in a position that might um, cause you to look for a tactic. Because one thing I harp on in my videos and with my students is uh, sense of danger. Especially right. paying attention to undefended pieces.
0: Yeah, I've seen that in your tactics videos. I have. Yeah, you you do a really good job of, uh, you know, giving people mental shortcuts.
1: Yeah, thanks. And probably my my longtime viewers are sick of me talking about it all the time. But players who are say below sixteen hundred, that's the thing that just dominates the type of games that they're getting. Undefended pieces. People just making straight up blunders. And really not being able to go like 10 moves without making some catastrophic error like hanging a knight or something for free. Right. And I I firmly believe that you can't really progress in chess until you get a handle on that. Like it makes no sense to study advanced middle games or specific end games even before you um, are are capable of playing a a game where you're not not dropping your queen. Right. Cool. Yeah. Go ahead. I like that book for uh, training that sort of thing. And one other book I wanted to mention is this book by an English grandmaster who was a I am at the time he wrote it. It's called Amateur to I by Jonathan Hawkins. Okay. And that book is a really cool one because he was a kind of a late bloomer in chess. And as an adult, I think he was rated about 1700 in his 20s and just decided he wanted to get good. Oh, wow. And he, and he documents the, the basically the path he took to become a international master.
0: That's a great recommendation because, you know, I get emails from listeners saying like, you know, obviously we have, we have some kids, we have kids listening, middle-aged people, but there are a lot of adult, uh, you know, chess enthusiasts looking to improve who say, who've asked me to get like an adult chess learner on. But the problem for me has been, it's a little bit harder to parse exactly who to get um you know yeah. so that's that's a great recommendation both as like um something i'm interested in reading since i'd still
1: like to improve in theory um, yeah it's a great book and interestingly probably 90 percent of the book is on end games okay so he heavily credits the end game as giving him uh the most improvement in chess
0: yeah, well I've heard it suggested that it's sort of the low-hanging fruit if you look at chess sort of I mean not at your level but like at sort of a more club play level from a strictly pr- practical perspective, you know, people like people either like or know they have to study tactics and people love to study openings, but end games are uh, you know, End games are like putting in golf, you know, <laughs> they're, uh, yeah. they're, um, they're where, you know, where the rubber meets the road or whatever your cliche is there, you know, so many half points are decided in end games and, you know, it often gets overlooked or at least it gets shunted aside as sort of like a one off when it happens.
1: Totally, totally. And even within end games, I think there's um, kind of a useful partition to think about for a lot of people, like knowing exact positions and knowing end game theory. Right. There's kind of two, two elements to that. Yeah, and uh, you need to have both to um, play chess proficiently and play the end game well.
0: Yeah, for me, it's like I like looking at like virtuoso end game performances, but I hate studying end game theory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so okay, so John, we only have a little bit more time. Um, I wanted to get back to before we go. Obviously, I want to talk a little bit about chess playing. So I'm, um, I know that uh, you've been pursuing your GM title when you get a chance.
1: What's uh, what's the status of that pursuit? So I've been an international master since 2006. It pains me to say so <laughs> over 10 years now. And I've been most mostly floating between 2440 and 2460 in that time period. So a- I would love to make my grandmaster title. I would say at the moment, I'm not spending enough time on my chess study in order to make a serious go at it. But in scaling back my commitments, especially with my private teaching, I have freed up more time. So I hope to fill that time by kind of getting back to my roots and studying more. Um, I have a, just like a lot of guests you probably had on, I have a love-hate relationship with pursuing the Grandmaster title because obviously it is the the culmination. It would be the fulfillment of my personal chess dream, really. But uh, just the unpredictability of it makes it such a tough thing to to plan for. And maybe even justify, if you will, pursuing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And do you have any norms? I have one Grandmaster norm. Yeah, I got it in 2013.
0: Okay. And for you, someone at your level, like if you do push your pedal to the metal and try to try to push for that title, what, what sort of work would that entail? How would you study?
1: I think for me in particular, I really need to improve my openings. I think that's the one area of my game that's uh, lacking. And... I also probably need to work on my calculation a lot, too. Uh, Stylistically, I like playing end games. I like playing strategically. I feel most comfortable when the game is a slower pace and maybe there's uh, some sort of maneuver or plan I can employ. I generally don't have problems in those types of games. But uh, when the game gets very sharp and also when the game immediately entails a lot of opening theory right from the get-go, I think some higher-rated players can expose that against me or even some well-prepared, lower-rated players.
0: Right. Yeah, you're so solid. When I watch your videos, sometimes it's like, I don't even know how like how you won or where your opponent went wrong.
1: Mm, Yeah, I found that style works extremely well in beating lower-rated players. Like, I hardly ever lose to lower-rated players, especially OTB. Right. Um, But it's not so great in trying to get Grandmaster Scalps. Yeah. Uh, One of my good friends in the chess world is international master Keaton Kira.
0: Mm -hmm. He's
1: from Nebraska, lives out in California now. And he and I have like diametrically opposed styles. He is becoming a little more solid actually nowadays, but he is very good with the initiative. He plays like the Sicilian dragon is black. He's played it his entire career. And I know when he was hunting for norms really actively, he still is, but especially a few years ago, he would have tournaments where he would lose to players that I would like never lose against. Yet he would also go on a streak where he would beat two or three grandmasters in a row in a tournament. So, guess who has more grandmaster norms? Me, right? Or him.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, want, you want to embrace volatility, right? Right. <laughs> that's funny. Whereas for
1: me, like my rating is usually just oscillated in this narrow band. Like I don't vastly overperform or vastly underperform. I'm usually like right in the middle, and that's not so conducive to making grandmaster norms.
0: Do you think that think that's right. a flaw in the norm design?
1: design um that's a good question i don't know um it is for you at least <laughs> it is for me yeah. yeah i want to be selfish and be like yeah Day should totally change this um but no i i just kind of look at it as another challenge i have to tackle i mean you, you always got to reinvent yourself right when you're trying to take your game to the next level so i think for me that'll just make me a better chess player as a whole if i can fight for a win in positions that previously i haven't gravitated towards
0: nice Okay, well John, one more question. I saw an old interview. I don't know if this is still the case, but it said you were a pretty big NBA fan.
1: Yeah. So I used to watch a lot of NBA, not so much anymore, but maybe now with the Timberwolves becoming more of a aspiring uh decent franchise, if you will. I
0: still <laughs> yeah. like it. Yeah. Yeah, they're uh, they're up and coming for sure. Um what so um so what else would you do in Minnesota? Um like day-to-day life when you get out of the house i guess you have family there so what else do you go out to bars or more of a stay-at-home kind of guy
1: i like a good mix you know i like hanging out with my friends and going out um i definitely like to stay physically fit like i was saying earlier i i go to the gym uh almost on a daily basis i'm usually there like five or six times a week i like to read a lot that's kind of my escape so i've always got some book i'm working through fiction
0: Um, or nonfiction.
1: I I like both, actually. Um, I really like biographies and autobiographies.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I tend to gravitate towards that genre. But I also like uh, classic works as well. So classic fiction and such. Nice. So, yeah, I try to do a little bit of everything. And I like to travel as well. Uh, I mentioned this recent Boston trip. I I definitely like uh, just taking short trips and seeing places I haven't seen before.
0: But not a lot of chess tourism at this point, I guess.
1: Right, right. That's always the problem, right? Because when you're traveling for chess tournaments, you can go to some cool location. But if you want to properly see it, you've got to build an extra time. Right.
0: Uh, Do you have any tournaments on the horizon for those of you who are rooting you on online for the listeners?
1: Yeah, the only tournament I have committed to is a tournament in August in northern Minnesota. It's just a five round tournament. But I might be playing a norm event in Madison, Wisconsin next month, too. I'm still deciding.
0: Yeah, I've seen the the promotion for that. It looks great. Um Yeah. So I'm sure people will be checking to see if you're in it. Okay, yeah. well well John, thanks a lot for coming on. You've actually I, I think I told you this offline, but you've been uh my most requested guest. Oh, <laughs> you're, I'm very flattered. You're you're beating Gary Kasparov, you're beating uh, Magnus. <laughs> so <laughs> So uh, I think you're you're definitely uh striking a chord with people. So if I only could, I could
1: trade ratings with those guys.
0: <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, thanks so much for organizing this. I really appreciate the work you've done with this podcast, and I really enjoyed it. Hopefully, I can be back on again in the future when you start taking repeat guests, maybe down the line.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely in the works a year or two down the line. And, you know, I'm, I'm eager to see what happens with Chessable. So uh, you can uh, pop in and give us an update at some point. And um, last but not least, I think most, again, I think most listeners know how to reach you, but what's your preferred method of uh, people tracking you down?
1: So if you go to my YouTube page, which you can find just by typing in my name, John Bartholomew on YouTube, uh, there's an about page and that will link to my email. It'll unveil my email. Okay.
0: Yeah. And John's on, on Twitter a little bit and you guys, I think Yeah, if you tweet at me
1: too. I'll I'll almost certainly see it. Okay. Especially if you tweet something funny, I'll probably reply. (laughs) Nice. All
0: right, cool. Well, thanks again, John. I really appreciate your coming on. Uh, and, uh, hopefully we will talk soon.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to
0: Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to PerpetualChessPod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Sports Social Podcast
1: Network